I felt like we saw a lot of people green lighting the purge to happen and certain blogs that would talk about it in a real way and, and using our siren, our famous siren sound. It, it got a little uncomfortable being at the forefront of this. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. Two thousand eighteen saw the release of the first Purge, the fourth and most successful film in the Purge franchise. This prequel was more than just another dystopian action film. Between bursts of gunfire, it took a hard look at race, class, and power in America. Lex Scott Davis played Naya, the film's female lead. Lex sat down with History of Horror showrunner Kurt Zienga to talk about making the film, why horror is best watched in a crowded theater, and the enduring appeal of zombie apocalypse movies. So what drew you into acting? I was a dancer my whole life. From a toddler going into college, I was a dance major. And I always was performing, even though with dance you're not speaking, but it's performance and um, self-expression. And I got to a point where I just knew that I wouldn't have a long career as a dancer. You know, once you hit like 25, your body works a little differently and opportunities start to change. And you're given these two destinies ultimately is to go home, be a teacher, a dance teacher, or be a choreographer, because you can't dance back up forever. So I just was like, you know, I need to figure out how I can perform forever. And acting is the answer to that. So I left and um, moved to New York and started acting in New York and then moved to LA. And that's where, that's where all the things started to fall into place with acting. What kind of roles are you attracted to? Then? Honestly, I'm attracted to scary roles. I, and it's crazy because this is the only thriller that I've done, but I'm really attracted to psychological thrillers. And not just the person existing in the in the space, but the villain of those and the person who's possessed or the person who's a little kooky. Like those are the roles I'm truly attracted to. That hopefully one day I'll get to play if the opportunity presents itself. That's really what I wish to do. Does that let you go places that you don't ordinarily get to go as Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just I want to be scary. I want to be the scary guy. You know what I mean? Like, I do. I mean, even I think even the jobs of the the people who work in haunted houses are fun. Like, who get to you know jump out and scare people. I think it's something about it is really really attractive to me. I just kind of want to go there and it just shed like what you're used to seeing. Like, not it's not Lex. Like, I want to see someone different than what people who know me can see. Is really really transform and become something new, like The Exorcist, you know what I mean? Like that's a transformation for real. Like that's really interesting to think about the actress who had to go there. And what that experience must have been like to live with that character for an extended period of time. Like it messed her up. It did, but it's, I mean, when you're, I think that's something that's, I mean, Luckily, I'm not a method actor, so I don't think I would dive too deep and, and not be able to be pulled back out. 
But, you know, as an actor, you kind of want, you want to transform. It, it's cool to become different characters and not just play yourself. It seems to all be about being able to maintain your sense of self. And some people can just go back and forth like that. Yeah. So just immediately be like crazy nuts on camera, then just, you know, anyway, then turn it back on again. Yeah. I think it helps having people in your life to, that can ground you and surround you with love. Because if I were a single person, which I am not, I could imagine the difficulty of having to dig and go into these dark places to then come home and you're by yourself still sitting with these dark things and these ideas and, and whatever you had to come up with emotionally in yourself for how many hours a day, you can't just shed that when you come home. However, me on the other hand, I have I have a new baby and I have a husband and it is I couldn't I wouldn't be able to come I'm not allowed to come home and still be in that dark place. I have to still be who I am and, and a strong woman and, and a provider and all of these things and that helps me a lot. Not not necessarily with horror, but even if it's like a super emotional scene or emotional day, I had to carry something because of a character I'm playing is going through something really traumatic. It's kind of a breath of fresh air when you can come home and get out of that and see some smiling faces and some love and hear words of encouragement and watch a good TV show. Or, you know what I mean? Just something that's just break that a little bit. And then go to sleep, wake up, and go back, and you can do it all over again. familiar with The Purge before you got into this film? I was, yeah. I love The Purge franchise in general. I remember seeing the first one in theaters with Ethan Hawke. I was living in Philly at the time, and I, I remember it like really vividly, my experience in the theater seeing it. I thought it was incredible. I think we all have a fear of home invasion deep down. And so to bring these odd characters and these masks to the front door of this beautiful home in this safe neighborhood, it was just very, very uncomfortable still to this day. What did you think when you got the script for the first Purge? I absolutely loved the script. I actually, when I read it, I obsessed over it. There's not that many scripts that I'm... And deep down, I'm like begging for it to be my role. But this one I was. I was I was really serious about getting this job. And I fought hard for this job too. It was so grounded in reality, the writing, because this this night doesn't didn't exist for these characters in this story. And so there's this sense of just just being authentic and real. And that's what attracted me to it, just seeing what what it would be like for these type of people to experience what we saw happen in the original to the wealthy. So it was, it was a very, um, it was a fresh take on it and informative because again, as a fan of the whole franchise, you know, you want to understand like w how this even all started. And how it, yeah, mushroomed into this societal wilding, I guess. So <laughs> what's the plot of the film? So the plot of the first Purge is to tell how the Purge became a national holiday. We watch the FFA, who, are, who is our government in this imaginary world, create this experiment and put it and place it on a poor community in Staten Island. So they, the FFA offers money to people who need it. And this is how they incentivize murder. They have their reasoning for it, which is if we give one night of access and freedom to commit any crime you want to do, then that would lower the crime rate for the rest of the year. That's what they say. However, my character in particular, Naya, discovers this is deeply rooted in something bigger than just a crime rate. This is rooted in classism, racism. It's unfortunate that a lot of the people in the community fall for it because of the money. But my character is, is trying desperately to, to wake people up so that they realize what exactly is going on. They want us to kill each other so we no longer exist 
So there's not as many of us because stereotypically that's who is creating the most crime. The villain of uh, the film, the administration official says that we could save so much money in social programs. Right, right. Such an awful theory played beautifully by Marissa Tomei. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah, it's uncomfortable to even think about and to, to the fact that that was in 2017 when we filmed it. And now it's oddly relevant now is um, also why this makes it a horror film for me. Yeah, it seemed like a, a projection of the time. And then within just watching it a you know, week ago, just like, oh, yeah, I totally buy that. Yeah. Totally, totally buy that. Yeah, yeah. So. And that's what makes it scary. I think it, with for me, I'm the most afraid of the things that seem the most real and that don't seem that far off of what we could actually go through. While a lot of people would categorize this as, you know, an action thriller, it is a lot of action to it, yes, but the thriller and the horror of it all is because it's so real. It could be like that. The cruelest part of it, too, is also that they're taking advantage of the desperation of the people because a number of characters of all across the board talk about how they'll just whatever it takes to get out right. of Staten Island, right? Right, right. Other economic circumstances. And then how many can actually get out of Staten Island? And that's the other plight of it all, too. You know, it's it, it puts a magnifying glass on what it is like for those in places like this and for someone like us. It'd be easier said than done. Let's just leave Staten Island. Well, it's not it's not like that. It's um it's way more difficult. And I think that's something the government knew, too, is, you know, we will give you this thing without any resources to or access to even have a better outcome, like the first film installment where they had the resources to have proper security in their house. And, you know, it's just, and the only reason it was breached was because they let someone else from the outside who didn't have it in. It's, yeah, this, this film unpacks so much um, politically. And I think that's what attracted me to the franchise too. I really do think it also helped just to take the series into a much better direction, <laughs> you know, because after you, you see the first film, it's kind of like, okay, I get it, whatever. Yeah. I mean, as a sequel, we're putting this in the sequels that don't suck category because right. it does something that the other films don't do. Right. That, and again, that's what attracted me to it because these these people, we don't know what a purge is. It never It never existed before for the story of telling how it all began. And so... The fact that you're able to meet them outside of the Purge world is really nice, too. It, it grounds the experience because we're all going through it together. We know where it goes because we've seen it play out. But it's nice to not just start the film and immediately we're in this Purge night and there's people in masks. And it, it's like a it's kind of like a masquerade ball and it's a parade. And it's, you know, because a few of them got a little more colorful as, as time went on. And a, a little, you know, a little all over the place, if, if I'm being honest. But this it definitely is like, okay, no, we're getting to know Naya and what it is like for her to be an older sister and a caregiver to her brother and wanting to put him through a good school, but can't afford so. And now we have someone coming in, offering us money, which we think could free us up of all of these things that were really difficult for us. That is authentically true for a lot of communities. And so it makes this film relatable. The idea of like, oh yeah, this could happen in real life, but we're really getting to know these characters. We've seen these characters before. They're in our family. They're our neighbors. We can understand why the offer from the FFA was so enticing to begin with and how it became a national holiday. Who is uh, Naya? What's she about, your character? Naya is an activist. Um, she is, in her own way, like a, a warrior princess, I like to call her, um, for her community. She she knows everyone first name basis. And um, what she tries to do is get as many people off of the streets and into the church, which is is our safe haven. It's, it's where we can find protection in these dark times. And 
she's managing a lot because she's trying to be there for the community, but also she's trying to keep her brother safe, who has his own ideas and, and is becoming his own man. So of course he makes his own decisions. And what drives his decision-making is to take care of her. So they both want to take care of each other. They both want to provide for each other. We watch this young woman without parental guidance try to be mother of a lot of people and try to convince as many people to to wake up and really see what's happening to them and, and or to us and why why we should not be participating in this even if the money sounds good what it's truly doing to our our community and to our neighborhood and our people Chelsea has a past. She's involved. Uh, she was involved with uh, Dimitri. So yes, tell yes. me a little about him, uh, yeah. his character, and where he stands in the community. <laughs> so um, Dimitri and I have an interesting past because they want the same things. They just have two separate ideas of how to get there. Naya went more straight and narrow. Dimitri, on the other hand, he finds putting money back into his community also puts drugs into his community and, and gives young people business. It gives them structure. It gives how, you know, it teaches them how to work and provide. But Naya is like, that's, that's crap because you're putting a disease into the community at the same time. So how is that ultimately protecting them? That's what tore them apart. But there is a lot of love there. We don't even discuss it in the film. We discuss it in, in all of our rehearsals and um, <laughs> talking backstory with Gerard, our director. But there's a lot of love there and it's it's complicated and it's frustrating to really want the same things. And we just can't agree on you know how to get there. But throughout the night of The Purge, we find each other again. We, our stories kind of run parallel as we both are doing what we can to save the community. Again, it looks different, but we both are truly saving the community. Now, it's interesting that he's the hero of the film to the point where at the end he's like Blade or something. You know? Yeah, <laughs> so. we compared him to Blade often <laughs> while making it. <laughs> that makes sense, yeah. But usually, you know, often in, in many, I think, mainstream films, he'd be the villain because he's like the drug lord. Yeah. Like in this in this one, you know, yeah. he it's a much more complicated picture, right? Yeah. Kind of more reflective of the realities of life, perhaps, mm -hmm. for people. I think that's what's cool about the story, though, is because someone you would think is the villain here is not. He, he isn't. It opens up a greater conversation, too, just about... When there's powers that be that are trying to come in and do something to your place, your home, that the only thing you've known, you know, your intentions start to shift. No matter what you did prior to that moment, this is bigger than me and this one transaction I did that is illegal over here. You know what I mean? This is bigger than that. Like this, at the end of the day, I don't want people to die on the hands of the government, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, I think that's what shifts him out of being considered a villain. And I, I never, I never looked at him as a villain, even though we, the characters couldn't agree. I never saw him as a villain because there's a point to, to why he is the way that he is. From his perspective, he would never be a villain. He's putting business in people's hands. He's putting money in people's hands and food on people's tables. So he doesn't see himself as that at all. But it's kind of similar to like a family dynamic, you know, like you can fight with your siblings or your parents all day long, but the minute someone else comes in and tries to say something negative about your sibling or your family member, it's like, no, we band together and we fight together. Was it important to create a sense of the, the community, the Staten Island community where the purge? It was, it was. We, um, we didn't film in Staten Island. We filmed in Buffalo, New York, but the writer, James Monaco, he's from New York, but he I think he's from Brooklyn specifically. But still, that was something that he wanted to reign true. We we went back to, there's a few scenes where we did actually go to Staten Island and film those because we wanted the actual buildings and the actual towers and projects that are, that are truly there and still there today to make sure we feel that's where they are. Because the reason it's there is, again, we discussed earlier, is, is to, to create a reason why people can't leave easily. Staten Island is it's not an easy place, you know, where you can just get out of there. 
so I think that's why he decided for it to be. Obviously, you could ask James DeMonaco himself, but um, I, I believe that's why he placed it there. And we desperately tried to make sure um, certain towers and buildings did reflect that we were truly there. When the purge initially starts, the result is not what the uh, the authorities have in mind, right? So yes. what, how does the community actually react to it? Well, the community actually threw a party. That was their reaction to the purge, which I think is brilliant, because that also speaks to a lot of what happens in real life. You know, there could be mass murders and police brutality and protests, but in between all of that news, you will find a new TikTok dance. You know, you'll find like a new song. You know, it's interesting what our society does. Like it's and how maybe maybe because we're a little desensitized from from these things, we don't we don't spend too much time on it. It's like, yes, this is reality, this is the news that's going on, but look at this thing. It's really fun and shiny and new. That's why the first reaction was let's throw a block party because this isn't real. Similar to, to COVID maybe too, you know? It, no one believed COVID would be what it became when we first started hearing about it a year ago. You know, people still went out, they still did their restaurants, they still were going to clubs. I've seen people on the internet in concerts even because people don't believe it. And then when it starts to really happen and unfold, then it's like, oh, okay, got it. And that's exactly what happened in our story. So the I think the FFA saw that. They were confused. They're watching, like, why are they just having fun? We mean business. They're just having fun. They send out people disguised as purgers to get things going. So ultimately, this community, which they assumed would be a violent place and assumed would be, this is where crime happens, right? There's no crime. We don't want to kill anybody. We want, sure, we want the money, but there's other crimes outside of murder. Let's, you know, that's the other thing we don't discuss. Someone could go rob a bank. That's also a crime. That could be legal, but purge goes to murder for some reason. Um, <laughs> so, you know, they see that we're not reacting in the way that they wish. And they send out these groups that are awful, awful masked groups of, um, there's images that are similar to the KKK and there's there's images that there were some men with these long dangly things coming out of their mask. Um, I don't know what they were trying to be, but they, they were awful, awful groups of men that the government set to place them on the street to, again, get things going. And I think a lot of people and just discussing this over the years, what that reminded a lot of people about is just how drugs and weapons arguably were put into poor communities in the 80s or 70s or whatever, 70s, 70s even, to place the crime there. You know, let me give you the tools and the things to kind of be destructive within your within your own communities. It suddenly became very easy to get heroin in around the early years of the uh, 70s, like yeah. after the uh, when the Black Panther movement and everything else came up. Exactly, exactly. So there are a lot of images and things that happen and events that happen in this story that, that say a lot about our history in general, that's the horror and I'm gonna keep saying that, but that is the horror in this. If you could talk a little about the importance of the church to the community yeah. in particular, and that that's of course the first place they go to just slaughter everyone out. Yeah, we all grow up with a sense of faith, or whichever type of faith that is, that is where we're supposed to feel our most safe. That's where we're supposed to be protected. And it's also a huge disrespect if anyone were to do harm to that place. And that's just a rule, you you know, you know better. You don't touch a church. You don't even curse in a church, you, you know, let alone put flames to it. So that was a really hard image for me to see because I did grow up in a church. That was a, a very hard image for me to see on when we were filming that and, and watching the flames on the cross even. It's, it's, it's very disrespectful. But it's just, it's sad. It's just sad. If if everyone is running to this one place for safety, there were children in there that you saw my character Naya with before the night really got out of hand. There were kids and there were elderly in there and they didn't care. They didn't care. And, and it's really sad. It was, it was hard for me to see. It's interesting though, because with thrillers and horror and the genre, 
for some reason, the church is the scariest thing, right? It's, it's, in real life, it's supposed to be the safe place, but in our genre, it's always dark. And that's also something about that I, I really enjoy. <laughs> I really enjoy the discomfort of that. Even like seeing the nun, you know, it's supposed to be, it's a nun. It's just the sweetest person on earth. You know what I mean? It's and to be this demon. It's like something about that is really attractive, <laughs> um, which I think why it works so well with so many different types of scary movies. So I think that kind of just fit into that whole, you know, the church is, is never a safe place in, in this in this world, in this type of world. I think nuns have a better image these days than they did from my mother-in-law's time when she had nuns who'd beat them with rulers and all of that. <laughs> right, right. So those were the so the exploration of nuns is really to pull out the dark demons really, behind the women who used to beat them. It's really with more rulers. old school, old school <laughs> nuns. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is the movie Presenting the Purge as a different experience for working class people than it is for, you know, that we saw in the earlier movies where it was very, like you mentioned Ethan Hawke, who's very wealthy, kind of entitled guy in the suburbs. Well, let me ask, the, the Purge, this specific one or the franchise? The first movie was about a guy who was a security specialist who was supposed to have this impregnable home. Yeah. Whereas the people in the first purge are people living in projects and yeah, stuff yeah. and houses that are not. Yeah. The, if they have security, it's their guns. Yes, it's it's interesting to see like the difference with the class structure of of the wealthy being able to have the proper tools to make their house safe and have the security systems and all of the things that they need versus a low-income working class household or family, obviously not able to have like, you know, metal shields, the walls that come down. It's a different experience for everyone, but no one's exempt. We see that no one's exempt because it started with the wealthy um, in, the, in the first installment. So it's, it, everybody, everybody can, is is part of this night. It's it's a national thing. Is it a class war or is it a race war? Is it a targeted genocide against people of color? Or is it a genocide against basically poor people? And if you throw in some rich political enemies, that's fine too. It's a tricky question because you could easily go to race, yes. But you go to race because of what was depicted in the groups that came in to try to add fuel to the fire, The you know, putting a... a KKK image in front of people of color is going to piss a lot of people off, period. But I do think it's more of a class thing because what we saw in the second installment, it went from the first one being in a con super contained in a really nice, safe house to then the second one being out in the world, the people on the other side of that. And they weren't necessarily poor or anything or, or a specific race either. But it did show us an example of, okay, what is it like on the streets? Where did that one person who ran inside the first house, where did he come from? He came from the second installment of everybody being outside and having to fight for themselves. So our movie, The First Purge, I think it's closely connected to race because of the images depicted. But I still think it's more of a class thing than it is a race thing. Yeah, that's a now, tough question. I hope I answered it. But I'm, oh, no, I guess I'm did. still like you figuring it out myself. But, the, but of course, the other thing about it is you could look at it as the government basically said, okay, we need some, you know, hire a bunch of guys to go in and kill people. And who's going to do that? Well, you reach out to your violent white supremacists. Right. They'll, they'll probably they'll go do in it. and right. reach out to mercenaries or whatever. Yeah, so. yeah. Who were our friends, by the way? Everyone dressed up were our, our stunt crew. You know, so we knew them, we hung out with them, we 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 know them. And so they were even uncomfortable putting on those costumes. Of course, you're and literally just, wearing clan robes. Yeah, is it was a very uncomfortable moment when those costumes came out. Um I'm just remembering what that what that was like for for me and Javan and Alan and everyone. Even at the end in the apartment block, the mercenaries are being led in a guy who's literally in a Gestapo uniform. 
who he was super uncomfortable too, um, which is great, great acting because we felt it. His energy was just very like, okay, we can't talk to you in between takes. Got it. <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah, it's something in there for everyone. And when I when I say that, I mean every race had to go through their moment of feeling racism towards their culture. And I think that this isn't just about black and white culture. There were things in there, like you said, they're just offensive. They're just offensive. There's no nice way to put it. So any audience member could watch this and feel that um, tension and that discomfort. Tell me about your director, what he brought to the film. (laughs) Yeah, um, Gerard was super cool. What he helped with is bring like that sense of like true grounded cultural aesthetic to the franchise because we haven't felt that with the purges until this one. His black experience fed these stories and these characters and gave us a little more layers to kind of pull from and, and play with because again, these are all very relatable things for me and um, and I'm sure for Alan too, we know these characters, we've seen them, we grew up with these characters, you know, but it was just like, bring. let's bring the essence of them back to this. This franchise hasn't felt that yet. Like, let's bring that into it. And I think Gerard like kept reminding us of who we are and what stories we're carrying with us and making it applicable to the Purge world. Were the action parts of this fun to act in? So much fun. The action part, oh my goodness. After this, because this was my first time having stunt work or anything like that. And after this, I kept saying like, okay, I'm going into stunts. I ha- I want to learn stunts, like for real, train hard, like Holly Berry, like train hard. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun, but it was hard, you know, for a person when you've never had to fake a punch before. We weren't really safe by accident. Like I would accidentally truly hit Elon, like for real. I, I, but he, it got to a point where he just kind of let me. Um, there's a scene where the two of us have this argument at the top and he kind of just like, have at it. And I just was smacking him. But that was, obviously you can't do that. But, you know, we created a safe place where he was just like, yeah, just do it because that helps me feel for real what I need to, you know, the anger that I need to feel in this moment. But man, they gave him an, an incredible stunt scene with the staircase at, towards the end of the movie. That scene on the stairs is brilliantly choreographed and again made Alan look super badass of like Blade and um yeah I think the the stunt team did did really really well and even playing with um the weapons I had a a fire fire a gun and had to train and learn how to do that and um there was real fire we used I think one of the scenes may have gotten cut but we there was a scene where we literally ran from an explosion and we did in real life, um, they blew something up behind us and we had to run. And that was awesome. I was not scared at all. Yeah, I, I really had fun working on the stunts with these guys. The other thing I couldn't help but thinking is the klaxons uh, ring and the purge is over and you look around and like, well, the entire apartment has been blown to hell. So right. how do you, what do you do now? Where are you going to move you're gonna like and all the people are participated in it like how much did you lose you know that you lose everything and that's the terrible part because again like we met them in the beginning and her naya's sink was leaking in the beginning of this like there was stuff falling off of the ceiling it was already in bad shape and then you end in even worse shape than you began it's just it is really sad because you know that the resources aren't there so it is, that's the truth. What do we do and how do we, how are we supposed to remain optimistic? Which they do, which is a beautiful ending. It's very optimistic and we're going to fight this thing. And But honestly, where do you go after that moment? In all the purge films, everyone rides it out. We just try to ride it out. It's 12 hours. We can do it. It doesn't sound that bad until someone knocks at your door <laughs> and is literally hunting you.
there's actually a purge happening, would that idea gain any traction or not, or would it be shut down? It already has gained traction. I think the, the audience of this constantly talks about if the purge was real and what would they do. I think everyone's seen this and you leave the theaters, the hypotheticals, you know, across the board, like, what would you do in a, you know, if it was a purge night? Something about that is enticing for the audience, for the people who are super into this, these films. But it does, it says a lot about where we are as a society. But again, it's it's funny because we always go straight to murder. In real life, I don't know. I, I mean, if you could say what you would do, but I feel like I would just, you know, try to like steal all the food out of Whole Foods or something. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to to murder. There's so many other things. If you, if you look at actual riots that are broken in where there's legitimate lawlessness, murder is not yeah. high in the list. Everybody yeah. wants money and stuff. Yeah. No one's out, everyone's know. not out to kill. Um, and the first guy who commits, a, that we see committing a crime in the first purge is trying to break into an ATM machine. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And he's killed by the character we have to get to next, which is the one legitimate psychopath yes. in the film yeah. Who basically is sort of like, well, you know, you gave everybody a license to kill, but there's always going to be one person in that group who's like that guy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Stay who's... away from him. So tell me about Skeletor and why he works as a Skeletor. great villain. He's a great villain. Um, well, he's the neighborhood junkie. I'll start there. He cut my brother, actually, um, because he wanted drugs and he wouldn't give them to him and like good price i think that's what it was for for free for saying free. i should get it free because first i'm a good customer and first right. time yeah right so so that's that's his whole goal is just like i need money to get my drugs that's it um and so he's like sure you need me to kill who and how many got it are you guys watching this are you are you catching are you keeping count because i need you guys to pay me so that's the the ultimate villain right there who does not care he's just he has nothing to lose. Love and family and all of that and morals, that's not something that this type of person just walks around having. With any addiction, your addiction comes first. And so that's that's what we saw with him. Like, I'm just feeding my addiction at this point. Tell me a little about the uh, contact lenses. It's particularly effective as an image, too, so in this film. Yeah, the contact lenses are a way for the... FFA to keep track of who's doing what so that they can um, basically have a receipt of the violence you commit so that they can give you what they said, which is money, Um, which I don't think anyone actually got. But we never got to that part in the movie. Like, when do people actually get paid? Um, (laughs) But yeah, so that's that's what the contact lenses were for. So they had drones that kind of kept track. But then they also, if you committed a crime, they'd keep up with um, watching you commit the crime. And tell me about the color of the contact lenses and why that kind of works in the darkness of the film. Yeah, they're like these computer-generated things. So they glow, which kind of doesn't help my brother's character when he's hiding in the dark because obviously you have to look around when you're hiding in the dark but he's you can see him because his eyes are glowing and he can see all the other eyes that are on him i remember in the theater um like well just take the contacts out take them out and then people are like well, he can't take it. this is literally happening in the theater he can't take them out because he has to keep track of them <laughs> it was fun going to see scary movies in the theater in public i miss that i can't wait till we can do that again that really adds to the whole experience of like everyone you don't know these people but everyone's like banding together in the audience like shouting at the screen giving advice and solutions and don't run that way. Like that's the, I miss that. I really do. like the first purge inspire social change yes i think i think it can inspire social change because you can see worst case scenario if you don't we have a lot of issues as a as a nation 
and it's reflected in these types of films, it should inspire us to do better, I think. Hopefully not inspire us to, we should have this in real life. Hopefully not that. I've seen that on certain blogs where people are super into it, too into it. But hopefully the opposite, like, okay, so we can see exactly what not to do and what not to become. It, it's not impossible to have that. Um, so I think it should inspire some change for the better. It'd be nice to somehow track everybody who posts things saying they want to encourage yeah, mass murder. It's a little <laughs> weird, right? It's a, yeah. And I think a lot of, um, it was weird kind of like being the faces of, of this story when it came out. I felt like we saw a lot of people green lighting the purge to happen and and there were there were definitely a, like a lot certain blogs that would talk about it in a real way and um and using our siren our famous siren sound to uh it, it got a little uncomfortable being at the forefront of this during the election time so tell me what was going on while you were shooting the first purge and was there any resonance of that uh yeah i mean it was it was very um it was eye-opening. I think um, the the president, the former president, kind of unlocked a beast. Everyone knows it's there, but everyone wasn't just outright with it as much as they are now. And we used that. We used it. Um, in the film, there's even a line that we added in post where I will not repeat it now, but I say it and it's, an, it's a direct quote from our former president. And even when we started to go into getting the word out there and advertising, our hats, I meant to bring you on today, but our hats resemble the MAGA hat. It's a red cap, but it says the first purge. So we we used it. We knew, we knew what we were doing <laughs> just to make people a little on edge, a little uncomfortable. And also again, just like, it's scary because like, it feels close to home. It, this movie in particular feels very close to home. Being at the forefront of that, there was, there was some discomfort, but um, you know, we owned up to it. <laughs> Who knew that having a black president for eight years would apparently piss off so many people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all very, very obviously uncomfortable and something you just never imagined we'd have to still be dealing with in 2021. These are stories that my grandparents told me and they're not far off from the stories my generation has to tell now. So it's really sad, but um, it's the truth. Well, let's talk about some other movies. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Tell me about The Invisible Man, the uh, the 2020 Invisible Man. The 2020 Invisible Man uh, with Elizabeth Moss was awesome. I, I watched it, um, I think, when it, when it first came out digitally because COVID. And um, it was hard to watch because it, it's, again, it's, it's another story about domestic abuse. And that's always a difficult one to watch, especially as a woman. The things that um, abusers will do psychologically to their victims is, um, it's tricky. It's not even always overtly abuse. It's really like a mind game that they play for a number of reasons to either, either keep them close to them, to, to feel like they have a full control of, of the abuse, or to make the abuser feel like it's not abuse and this is fine and this is normal and this is how I love. There's so many weird mind games that are played with this beyond the, the physical. And that's what this story kind of goes into because now you have someone taking control by faking their death to be in this place of no one believing you and no one understanding and no one catching it in the act of the of you being dragged across your kitchen by this invisible man. No one's going to see it happen. 
how do you plead your case? How do you get out of it? How do you get help? That's what's tormenting about watching her experience is trying to escape a, a bad relationship. That's all you want to do is just escape this bad relationship. And he's figured out a, a crazy, super intelligent way to keep hold of you. And Elizabeth Moss, actually, obviously this movie never would have worked without uh, an actress like her in that role. Elizabeth Moss is absolutely incredible. You really feel her soul when she acts in her eyes. It's all there. The intensity behind her eyes that draws you in to all of her characters. And this one is someone you know is a strong woman because you, you've seen her um, portray that for so many years with, with her television show. But to see her weakened by a man and weakened by her love, it's, it's hard to watch. But she found all of those layers and all of those colors and finding her strength throughout the film too. And I think that's the overall arc of her characters, finding that strength and sticking to her word. And I know I sound crazy right now, but you have to believe me. And if you don't believe me, fine, I'll figure it out myself. Um, there's so many layers there that only Elizabeth could have brought. Bird to box. <laughs> I watched that several times. I felt really bad for the children. Um, as a mom, a boy, girl, and it was like that disconnect and trying to understand like why was there such a disconnect with Sandra's character and, and the kids. And then you, as, as the story unfolds, you learn. And to see her arc later being able to say their names was, um, was a beautiful place to end. Are movies like this rehearsals or practices? Do you, I mean, do you find yourself putting yourself in the position of the character and just thinking, you know, what would I do or how would I survive this kind of situation? Yeah, yeah. You always walk away with some sort of hypothetical, like, okay, if, if you had to do that, what would you... It, it makes you think about <laughs> the type of person you are. But then we could always plan and say what type of person we are, what thing we would do until it really happens to us. And then we just completely freak out and blow it, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it is fun to talk about after the fact, like, you know, what you would have done differently than what you saw the character doing on the screen or noticing exactly at what point this whole thing went completely wrong and, and where it could have been fixed. And um, I think that's always fun as an audience to watching horror. In a way, it's a little bit of a self-discovery, too. You kind of go in and, and, and figure out, like, let me put myself in that character's shoes and what I would have done. Now, when the pandemic broke out, were you one of the people who went and started watching all the infection <laughs> films they could find? I didn't, but I did notice like how every time you logged into a streaming service, those were like the top in 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 America films watched were all of the infection films, different ones. I think I watched I Am Legend again just because I I enjoy that film, but that was probably like the closest infection type of movie we we checked out during the pandemic. What's striking about that film? I think what is really interesting about that film is the fact that their zombies are smart. I think um, we're so used to the, you know, the classic like brain eating zombie who doesn't know anything and they're just a, a, just a vessel. These monsters can think and plot and plan and, you know, they became their own force and their own army. And that makes it even more frightening because they're superhuman and strong on top of like, oh, you can think too? Like that's that's new. Um, you know, usually the, the zombie is just, you know, chasing you and, and that's it if they see you. Because they might not see you and then you're all good. You might get or, or wobble through as if you're a zombie and you might be safe. Shaun of the Dead kind of did that. <laughs> um, that play on it. Like, let's just pretend to be a zombie and they won't know. But no, I am legend. You know, Will Smith's character had to, protect himself from smart, powerful zombies. And the fact that they were able to orchestrate a trap for him to be caught into where he was dangling upside down for however many hours was just, that's when you knew like, oh, okay, these aren't just, these aren't your regular, just googly eye, whatever zombies Like you have to. And if, for him to be by himself throughout the whole thing too is, that makes it worse because what do you you have no men you have no army no team 
until he finds the the women find him but still it's just how how many years has he been out there or how many months or whatever has he been out there by himself with his dog having to shelter from these guys they mean business <laughs> the time he played it was kind of a change in parts for him because before that he was funny kind of the cocky pilot yeah. or whatever else yeah, yeah maybe an action guy but funny yeah yeah yeah, I think that speaks to his level of his his talent too, because I think uh, some some actors find it hard to transition between different genres, especially if you you know start as a comedian and everyone sees you as being funny or being the action guy who can just take a shirt off at any moment. You know what I mean? It's hard to then transition into someone who is really emotional and a little bit dark and a little bit kooky because he spent so much time by himself and it had so many layers and suffered so much loss to see him portray this character and do it well and beautiful ex- performance was I'll admit to this it's sometimes it's hard to see a person you like as one thing become something else and you know it's that's with any character a TV character that's been on for several years you know, it's it's hard to pull them out of that character that they used to be. You almost don't remember that actor's name. You just remember the, the character's name, unfortunately. There are a few actors who can genre bend like Will Smith, and, and he did it beautifully. What do you think the appeal of the apocalypse kind of movies is? I think people like to watch apocalypse movies because it's close to home again. It's it's at the at a drop of a dime, we could have a crazy tsunami that just wipes us all out. We can have an earthquake that wipes us all out. Or if you believe in aliens, we could have an alien invasion. These terrifying, natu- usually natural events that occur to everyday people. You know, we just plan to be here and, and sitting across from each other, but an earthquake could happen. And then what? Then what would we do? Where would we run? You know, and I think that's um, the thrill of it all. It's We like watching someone else go through it so that when it happens in real life, we can better prepare and plan um, and, and make sure we we figured it out and, and watch what worked and what didn't work in these films and, and then got it. I'll apply that to real life and make sure we have it all set up and ready to go. Um, so yeah, I think that's the thrill of it all. That was Lex Scott Davis. Join us next time for Meatloaf. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayenga. Produced by Kurt Sayenga. Engineered by Chris Heckman. With music by Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the third season of the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayenga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Marco Brazes, Kelly Nash, Chris Powers, and Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayenga for Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut. Uncut.